Well, it is 2021. I don't know if there was any doubt in your house if we would make it to 2021, but at least my oldest son uh, really doubted whether 2021 would actually get here. He kept proposing this theory that the clocks for the first time would actually go 11, 59, 59, 60, 61, 62, 63. And thankfully that didn't happen. And there's been a lot that has been made of it actually being 2021 and by 2020 being behind us. And one of the reasons for that is that people are wanting to look forward to something, a new year. Really what they're wanting to look forward towards is hope. Over the past several weeks, really we could say past several months as we've been looking at the book of First and Second Peter, But over the past three weeks, Damon and BJ and Gary, as they were preaching, really looked at this whole idea of of hope. And it's pretty common, I think, here in, in, in our church and in other churches, when you hit this time of year, Christmas and New Year's, to talk about hope. And one of the things that I've been struck by is that in years past, when we talk about hope, we talk about hope in ways in which we're saying, hey, don't put your hope in your physical fitness. It's good to have those goals for the new year, but that's not where your hope lies. Don't put your hope in money. Don't put your hope in the job um, performance or the new job or or who you are. Don't put your hope in uh, getting better grades, but ultimately our hope should be in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is right, and that is a good message to proclaim. But I think this year we feel this need for hope maybe more than any other time. I mean, I I was thinking back and as I drive out to my parents' house, I drive through uh, the area that was hit by the tornadoes. And I don't know if you've been out there, but it's just a totally different landscape. It's just devastated out there. And, And I think, I go back and I think, I think to those who, who were impacted by the tornadoes, who lost everything. I think about this virus, and um, I think about how it has left some people feeling hopeless. I think about the economy, the political, the social unrest, and I, I think that as a, as, a, as a nation, as a group of people, uh, as a city, we feel the need for hope maybe more than we have in years past. Something that I did this weekend that was interesting was I googled hope in COVID-19. And what's fascinating when you do that is that it just, boom, spits out all kinds of articles and all kinds of things. And most of them, all of them that I read, revolved around, it was just pages and pages full of things like this, um, the hope... Uh, for ending COVID-19 is in science. The hope for ending COVID-19 is in um, a vaccine. The hope for ending the effects of COVID-19 is, you know, this administration or that administration or this or that. We're surrounded by this language of hope. I was also told of a, of a story, and, um, and I assume many people are here, of, of a lady who was high risk with covid Uh, And she had been shut in, think about this, shut in for over 
10 months. And as the vaccine is beginning to roll out, uh, she was really talking about the hope that she was putting in this vaccine, that she'll be able to go and to hang out with her kids and her grandkids and uh, resume life a little bit more normally than she has over the past 10 months. Today is exciting for me because we're beginning a new book, a new study. We're going to be looking over the next however many months and weeks ahead in the Gospel of Mark. And what's exciting to me as we begin this book of Mark, what we see is that Mark, the Gospels, point us to true hope. We know, right, kids, you could tell us, hopefully, that there are four Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the whole meaning of gospel means the good news, and it's the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus came into this world and died a death so that we could be reconciled to God, meeting our most fundamental, our largest need. And so we place our hope and our trust in Him, and it changes us forever. And so it's interesting to me that as we go into this new year that we are looking at this book and we're going to be looking at the greatest news, ultimate hope that's found at the cross. And as I was reading in our Bible reading plan, even this morning in Genesis chapter three, where the curse had gone out because of sin, man's sin, I just was rejoicing in the fact that that curse no longer has a grip on us because of the cross. Now, what I think you will see this morning, um, there's, a, there's a real temptation for me. There has been a temptation to dig into the first eight or ten verses. And there's, Mark is just doing some awesome things uh, in those verses. But I'm, I'm going to refrain from doing that. And what I want to do is kind of give an overview of the book of Mark. And one of the things that I want you to hear, if you're going to understand the book of Mark, you've got to understand the movement uh, that, that Mark is doing in writing this book. And this movement that you see in this book is that Mark, as Jesus comes on the scene, and as he is telling this, this account of Jesus Christ, what you see is a lot of people are, are, are putting their hope in Jesus. They're gathering around, they're around him, and then all of a sudden, there's despair. And we'll see this, we'll look at this in a little bit. And then, as the Gospel ends, what we know is that hope is restored... And here's what I want you to hear in that true hope as the true hope is restored. What that does is it fuels the mission of the early church. And so there's a message in here for us. And as we look at this, as we look at this movement that Mark does in the text, we must understand the background and the setting in which Mark is writing. And I want to look at this in, in two ways. The, the first way that I want to look at this is the actual setting, the beginning of the gospel. And I don't know if you think about this. I know that Gary and BJ both referenced this. But the world that Jesus was entering into. This is a world of people who were longing, who were hoping. Uh, uh, people, God's people, uh, the, the Israelites, who were awaiting a Messiah, awaiting a Savior. But for 400 years, there had been silence. No prophecies, no speech from God. Just silence. 
Not only that, but they were still under captivity. They were under Roman captivity. And so while they were granted some some freedoms and it wasn't a harsh captivity at this point, that they were not who they who they knew they were supposed to be. They had these ideas of Messiah, of Messiah would come and Messiah would bring them out of bondage, would bring them out of captivity and would create a nation out of them into which all other nations would bow down. That this is what they were hoping for and this is what they were longing for. But instead, they were oppressed. The second setting that I want you to see is the one in which Mark is is actually writing, who he's writing to. Mark was the, we think, was the first gospel written. Now, wasn't the first book written in the New Testament. That would have been James and Galatians were in circulation. But Mark was the first gospel written. And I know that throws some of us off because of the order of the books in the New Testament. But it was the first gospel written. And it was written to Rome. Mark was in Rome and written to Rome. And it was written, we think, in the mid-60s. And the question has to come, well, why in the world would Mark write a gospel? And up until this time, they may not have thought that there was a need for an account of Jesus's life, which may sound weird to you. But the reason is, is that the apostles were alive. There were so many eyewitnesses. They were out. They were doing their thing. And what we know about this time is that the apostles are starting to be killed. That the church is starting to be persecuted. In fact, as Mark is writing this, Peter and Paul are both in jail. And so there became a need in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of this confusion, there was a need for this gospel, this account of who Jesus was and, and who he, who, what he came for, what he came to do needed to be written. In fact, it was about the time that this was written that Nero really started to hammer on the people of God. And and you may know this in history, but it is thought that Nero started a fire and he started this fire so that he could actually do some architectural changes to the city, but he blamed the Christians and this literally sparked an outrage in which harsh persecution would come. Uh, Harsh, horrible persecution. And it's thought that this gospel was written in the middle of that. So a people in need of hope. A people in need of true hope. A true hope that would drive the mission of the cross forward. That would fuel that mission. Now, like I said, next week we're going to dig in to the first couple of verses next week. But what I want to do is now that we kind of have the setting, the two settings, I want to back up and I want you to see the big picture, the big movements that happen here in the book of Mark. And what I think you will see as we unpack this is we will see a people that got excited for hope. Then there was despair and then there was reason to hope again, which fueled the mission. And we'll see this in this structure. Notice how this gospel starts in chapter one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, son of God. It's 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 amazing to me that in Mark, there is no uh, nativity scene. 
There's no shepherds, there's no angels, there's no stars, there's no baby Jesus. That Mark just starts off out the gate with, bam, Jesus was here, and boom, he went out and was baptized, he was tempted in the desert, and he starts his ministry immediately. Boom. And, and as he does this, we see kind of two major uh, sections in his gospel. Chapters 1 through the middle of chapter 8 is all about action. In fact, the word immediately is used over 40 times because Mark is just saying boom, and then immediately this, and then immediately this, and then immediately this, and then immediately this. And what was going on is that here is Jesus, and he's come into the world, and he's come on the scene, and he is doing some amazing things. People that are lame all of a sudden are walking. He is healing the blind. He is doing this openly and out in public. He is healing a, a withered hand. You remember the story of the paralytic that is dropped from the ceiling and Jesus heals this man. What about he's casting out demons? Could you imagine if you were there and you were with Jesus and there was somebody who was possessed by demons and you hear the demons say, we know who you are, you're the Son of God. And so as Jesus is going around in these eight chapters doing these miracles, the people are responding to Him. Let's look in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Notice what Jesus is proclaiming here. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And as Jesus was making this proclamation, his hearers would have, what would have echoed in his hearer's mind is, oh, this is the promised one. This is the Messiah. This is the one that is going to bring our nation back together and make us a huge political force to be reckoned with. And all these other countries are going to bow down to us. But over and over again in this gospel, we see Jesus trying to tell these people that are gathering, that's not that's not what I came to do. In fact, in verse 38 and 39 of this same chapter, we hear Jesus look in verse 38. He said to them, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came to do. And he went into the synagogues throughout all of Galilee, preaching and casting out demons. And when we see Jesus doing these miracles and preaching, he is proclaiming the kingdom of God in a way that they were missing. But, but, during these first eight chapters, we see this amazing display of the power and the might of God in Jesus Christ. And the other thing that happens is that people just everywhere are flocking to Him. There are large crowds. He just says to the disciples, come, and they just follow Him. Leave everything that they have. And it's amazing what's going on. But I want you to notice the turn and I think the turn, the pivotal point in Mark's gospel comes in the midpoint in chapter 8. Turn with me there in chapter 8, verses 28 through 33. Actually, 27 through 33. And this is familiar to you. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, notice what happens there. He asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And they told him, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. 
And he warned them to tell no one about him. Notice Peter answers the question right. That Peter says, you are the Christ, the prophesied one, the Messiah. He answers the question right. But notice, if we more careful reading of this, Peter doesn't really get it. Notice, as we read on, and he began to teach them. See the pivotal point here? Jesus begins to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected and killed. This Messiah, this guy that was supposed to bring this nation up from the ashes was going to suffer and be killed. It's interesting to me that Jesus also says, and after three days rise again, but it's almost like the disciples couldn't hear that part of the message. And so notice, notice in verse 32, and he was stating the matter plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And this is where we see Jesus telling him, get behind me, Satan. That in one moment, the declaration of thou art the Christ is the right answer. The problem was is that even his disciples didn't understand who he truly was. And so in chapters 9 through 16, you get Jesus over and over predicting his death, talking about suffering, talking about his kingdom and what the kingdom is really like. And don't miss this fact that his disciples missed it. In fact, the verses that David read this morning are interesting. That Jesus was talking about um, his impending death. And in the middle of this, James and John come to him and they ask, To be a part of the kingdom. And they're asking him to have a special place in the kingdom. Again, they would not ask this if they knew, and Jesus points this out, if they knew truly what this kingdom would look like. They were asking because they still assumed that this powerful Messiah was going to establish this kingdom on earth and they wanted to be a part of it. And so they asked, let us have a special place in your kingdom. And Jesus says to them, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the with the baptism which I am baptized? And they said, we're able. They didn't know what Jesus was talking about. And notice what Jesus tells them. The cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism which I'm baptized. But it's not for me. It's not mine to give. Then notice Notice what Jesus does. He tries to reorient them to what the kingdom of God truly is. But it's not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served. That the kingdom that Jesus... What do we do with great men in our society? We worship and we serve and we put them on a pedestal. And what Jesus says is he did not come into this world to be served, but to serve. And here's the key point, to give his life as a ransom for many.
And as Jesus marches forward to the cross, what happens to the followers? Those that were in the crowd, those that were surrounding him when he was doing all these miracles, they turn on him. There's this false trial that he goes through. He's spit upon, he's beaten, he is shamed publicly. And when he is on the cross, by the way, which one of the twelve is the one who betrayed him, so his own betray him, then when he's on the cross, the, the rest of the eleven aren't there. And Peter has denied him three times. He is there and he is alone. And Jesus had over and over and over tried to tell him of the tried to tell them of the glory of the cross. But because they couldn't see it, as he went to the cross, they were in despair and they run away. Now, they don't stay there. Thanks be to God. And I love how this book ends. There's some controversy that we'll get to later on about what is the real ending of this book. But I I tend to think that it ends um, after verse 8. And notice how this book ends. So, so the women are there, and it says, Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who's been crucified. He has risen. He's not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, He is going ahead of you to Galilee. And there you shall see him just as he told you. And what we know, Mark leaves us here, but what his readers would have known was that this was the beginning of the church and the power of the church. And it was all centered on the cross and the crucifixion and Jesus rising from the dead. The true hope that we have in this sort of hope that comes from God through His Son to us, changes us, and it should fuel our mission as it did these disciples in the early years. These men and women were no longer shaken with the chaos in the world that was around them. The chaos in the world wouldn't get any better. But these men who once went and hid marched into their death to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had a hope that was otherworldly. Now, I want to give you another example this morning of hope, despair, hope, mission. The writer of this book, John Mark. Now, John Mark was not an apostle. He wasn't one of the 12 or 11. But there's a lot written about John Mark in the New Testament, particularly uh, in the book of Acts. And so if you'll turn over to the book of Acts with me, I want you to see several things here. The first time that we see John Mark is in Acts chapter 12. And I just want to give you a little bit of a, an outline of what's going on here. In, in, in the book of Acts, we see the uh, Pentecost has happened. The apostles are filled with the Spirit. The church is formed. The gospel is going out. And here we have 
Peter chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. So here again, in the life of the church, we see persecution and hardship. And just as a side note, look at this next verse. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. James, willfully drinking the cup, being baptized in the baptism of Jesus. But then look at verse 3. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the time of unleavened bread. And, and do you know this story? This is the account where Peter was in prison. Things were going really bad. And all of a the sudden, there was an angel. Peter was tied to two guards, sleeping in between two guards. An angel appeared, and all of a sudden, boom, Peter is out of prison. And notice what happens. Notice what Peter does when he gets out of prison. And here's where we meet John Mark. Look at verses 12 through 14. And when he realized this, when he realized he was out of prison, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who is also called Mark. Now, notice the other descriptions that were given here by Luke, where many were gathered together and praying. So there were men and women gathered together praying for Peter and the persecution that's happening. And Peter, and this is John Mark's house, and Peter shows up at John Mark's mother's house. I love this. And when he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhonda came to answer when she recognized Peter's voice. Now let's stop there. What does this tell us if we're reading this account? She recognized Peter's voice. It meant that Peter had been at this house before. So Peter was no stranger to John Mark's home. In fact, we think that this home was a house church in which Peter would often come and teach and preach. And when she recognized Peter's voice, I think I just think this part's humorous. When she recognized Peter's voice, he's out of jail, he's at the gate. Because of her joy, she didn't open the gate, but she ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the front gate. And then they said to her, so remember, what were they doing? This is a whole other sermon. We won't go there. They were having a prayer meeting that Peter might be released. And when this girl comes and says that Peter's at the front door, do they say, our prayers have been answered? No. They say, you're out of your mind. You must have seen his ghost. (laughs) The point that I really want to make here is that Peter... And John Mark were familiar with one another. They knew each other. And this is the first time that we see John Mark. But it's not the last. Let's fast forward just a couple of verses later. What happens in the life of the church is that Paul was sent out as the missionary to the Gentiles. The first missionary journey. And notice in verse 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem where they had fulfilled their mission. Mission taken along with them John who was also called Mark. Now There were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius the Cyrene, and uh, Mnuchin, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. And while they were ministering the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work of which I've called them. They prayed, they laid hands on them, and they sent them out. And what we know is that Paul and Barnabas and John Mark were the first missionaries. Amazing. Story. But it doesn't end there. Look at verse 13 of chapter 13. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. 
But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. We're speculating here, but I don't think it's a too far of a speculation. We know that this first missionary journey was what? Easy? They just rolled into town and everybody was like, we've been waiting for the gospel. No, these first missionary journeys were difficult and they were hard. And what we're speculating here is I think it was really hard on John Mark. And and he had a vision of what he thought things would be like and it didn't meet that. And so John Mark here, he deserts Paul and Barnabas. He runs. He despairs. And in fact, we don't know where he goes for the next 10 years or so. But he shows back up in chapter 15. Again, many years later, notice in chapter 15, verses 36 through 41. And some days and after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. So they're going on another journey. And Barnabas wanted to take John called Mark. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. And so what I want you to see here is this. Whatever John Mark did, Paul had a hard time forgiving. He deserted them. And it was bad. But notice Barnabas. Barnabas saw something or experienced something with John Mark that he gained his confidence back in him. But that thing was so difficult that the two of them separated. Now, this just blows my mind. It's still not the last time that we see John Mark. If you turn, you don't have to turn with me. It's a lot of turning. Let me read to you. In 2 Timothy. Paul. In 2 Timothy chapter 5, 4 verse 6. I'm, I'm all, I'm, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I've kept the faith. This is the tone of the letter. Paul believes this is it. He is dying. And notice. Notice in verse 11. Only Luke is with me. Then hear this. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. That Paul and John Mark had been reconciled, so much so that Paul is saying, bring John Mark to me. He is useful to me. Also in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, he says this. He's talking about Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you greetings and also Barnabas's cousin Mark, notice how specific Paul is, about whom you received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. So there is some kind of reconciliation, this full reconciliation that happened with John, Mark, and Paul. And that's still not the last time we see him in the New Testament, and this is really exciting to me, that we see him, do you remember we saw him in 1 Peter? That as Peter is writing this letter at the end, he says also, greetings from my son, Mark. In fact, the early church, the tradition of the early church was that Peter, 
got all of his material, I mean, Mark got all of his material from Peter. Listen to Eusebius early in the in the early 100s. He says, and the elder said this also. Mark, having become the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately whatever he remembered of the things said and done by the Lord, but not, however, in order. For neither did he hear the Lord, nor did he follow him. But afterwards, as I said, Peter, who adapted his teachings to the needs of his hearers, but not as though he were drawing on a set on a connected account of the Lord's oracles. So then Mark made no mistake in thus recording some of the things he remembered them, for he took forethought to one thing, not to omit any of the things he had heard, nor to state them falsely. And here's what I love about this. Several things. John Mark in his journey had done something really bad. Despair had gotten the best of him. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be around John, Mark, and Peter? I, I just imagine a conversation of John, Mark saying, to Peter, Oh, Peter, I feel so guilty and shame. I, I deserted Paul and Barnabas. And Peter saying, Whoa, I denied Christ three times. Any wonder why at the end of Mark's account, when he's telling the women to go tell the disciples... That he says, go tell the disciples and Peter. Brothers and sisters. Our God is a God. Who makes beautiful things. Out of wrecks. The whole church. A way to say this, and this is, I think, the most accurate way to say this, is that God creates the church from dead people. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive. And so the whole church is made out of dead people that owe everything to Him. And then not only that, but even as we've been awakened to who He is and have followed Him, and many of us on that journey may have gotten off of that path, we see here we see here that God is a God of reconciliation and the hope that He offers us to reconcile us to Him is not a one-time offer. I just see a beautiful picture here again that John Mark was hoping in something. Then the reality of the world came in and he took his eyes off Christ and he despaired and then God restored him he was restored in the hope of Christ and it changed the trajectory of his life forever. And this hope fueled his mission so much so that here this deserter was selected by the Holy Spirit to write this gospel that for over 2,000 plus years brings hope to its hearers. This is amazing, amazing stuff. So what's our excuse? What's our excuse? I believe there's an open door right now to proclaim the gospel in a way that we have never proclaimed the gospel before.
The reason I believe that is because they are using our language all over the place. You can't go anywhere without hearing the word hope. And it is our job, it is our mission, that as we go, that we proclaim the hope that we have inside of us to a world that is in despair and that is in chaos. And the hope that we have is not a hope that guarantees that things are going to get better. There may be a COVID-32 by the end of the year. That's not where our hope lies. Our hope lies in that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive in Christ. In all the dead people walking around, He can make them alive again too. This gospel, this gospel that Mark speaks of, that he explains, this gospel still speaks. It is still the power of God for salvation. And God is still at work bringing men and women to Him through the proclamation of this gospel. And it is our call to go and to proclaim this. And as we go through this book of Mark in the next months, year, however long it takes us ahead, you're going to be asked the question over and over and over because Jesus does it over and over and over in this gospel is how are you going to respond to this? And that's what I love and what is so challenging about reading through this book is that we are asked, how are you going to respond? Have you deserted him? I know that in here this morning or online that there are some who saw a glimpse of some sort of hope in Christ and if they were to really be honest this morning they would say that they've deserted Christ. They've deserted the mission. What an amazing thing we see this morning whether it's his disciples whether it's John Mark. We see the picture of God, of Christ in the prodigal son with his arms open wide, begging his sons and daughters, running out to them, just come to me. I love you. (laughs) And I pray, I pray that this morning, that even in the hearing of this message, that there may be some of you who feel like you've deserted Christ and that you would be reconciled to Him. There's no reason to run any longer. And I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this. That when you're reconciled to Him and you see and experience and taste the hope that is offered, it's going to fuel your mission. And I pray that we are a people. We are a people whose mission as an individuals and as a church is fueled by the hope that is only found in the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for this book. God, I'm so excited that we are in a place where we can open a book about the life of your Son and that we can drink deeply from it. God, I pray 
that our vision of who your son is would just expand over the next weeks and months and maybe years ahead. God, I pray for those who all around us are without hope or who are putting their hopes in things that will not last, that God, that we may be the light that brings the gospel truth to them. I pray for those within the sound of my voice who may have deserted you or feel that they've deserted you. But God, your reconciling love and grace would just overwhelm them even right now. We ask for all of this in your son Jesus' name, who made it all possible. Amen.